0: All right. This is a special episode where I have brought on a friend, a talented friend, to actually interview me. Ben, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. I've got uh, a little bit, maybe five minutes or so, that we can talk through as sort of an introduction, and then basically I'm going to turn the reins of the interview over to you. But first I'd like to say why I chose you. Uh, you are one of my oldest and best friends. We talk about this kind of stuff a lot, and so you you get where I'm coming from, but also you have interesting questions to follow up or thoughts of your own that are different, and I don't think we're going to waste a lot of time in terms of just basically understanding each other. Also, you're a very good interviewer, and you are working on your own podcast right now, though we'll talk about that as you get closer to launching it, but you've, uh, you've interviewed people in multiple formats over the years, and I've always thought you did a great job and then finally, we have a patron-exclusive episode that we did, I think, over a year ago now, where we talked for like 80 minutes on the question of what counts as Orthodox Christianity and does it matter. So if you're a patron of the show, you can go listen to that. Just just scroll back in that feed. Some of that's going to come up, of course, as we talk tonight. A rare evening episode taping for me. I've got my 7.5% pint of Fort George Vortex IPA here to take the edge off as I... Attempt to answer all the most difficult questions <laughs> in one conversation, uh, which I'm feeling a little bit nervous about. But anyway, so I guess I want to talk about the title of this episode first. It's not called "Why I Am a Christian." It's called "Why I Am Still in Parentheses a Christian." And the reason for that is that very rarely do people say, "So why are you a Christian?" Like a a person who's not religious, or you know, no one ever asked me that question. But Christians. Who are I don't know interested in worried about in the process of deconstruction of some sort are like well if you're if you've deconstructed all that stuff if you don't believe the Bible's in error and if you gotta you know fill it in like why are you still a Christian that's usually the question that I get answered get asked rather and so I thought let's put that in there first of all and and acknowledge it and that's really kind of part of the whole slippery slope thing which we should talk about a little bit sort of at some point tonight that, you know, the slippery slope is there is sort of a common set of changes that do happen to people when they start questioning what they've been given. A lot of people think that that's because the devil deceives people in a similar way. But I think it's probably more likely that like certain concepts are linked to each other. And so if one falls, another one is weakened. But I got a handful of things that I will, I'll make sure we talk about, but consider this been the moment that I officially hand the baton off to you to be in charge and to run this thing. So you're in charge, tag, relay, baton handed.
1: Do you feel that? We just pass through an invisible membrane.
0: <laughs> oh, I got shivers.
1: You're on the other side of the table, metaphorically speaking. Hi, welcome to your own podcast, Dan. <laughs> I have a, a mug here that I accidentally stole From the company that I just left and I just drained some, you know, relatively low quality hot chocolate, but I feel good and I'm ready. About 30
0: minutes from now, you're going to have a serious crash. (laughs) (laughs) Oh
1: man. Uh, Let's start here. Tell me more about why you want to do this, why you want to do this now. You've done dozens and dozens of interviews and episodes on, you know, across your three podcasts. Why are we doing this?
0: Yeah. Good question. First of all, a lot of episodes just come to me like the minute I wake up in the morning, an idea for an episode. And I will just kind of pull my phone out, my notes program, and scribble some ideas down for 15, 20 minutes. This is one of those. And it felt like a live one. It just kind of felt like, yeah, that'd be good. I think I've been asked this question a few times recently, just in like the last few weeks. So that probably had put it on my mind. But then also... You know, the show's been going about a year now as of our recording this. And there's a lot of stuff on there that is like hot topics of deconstruction, right? So purity culture and homosexuality and inerrancy and atonement theories. And a lot of that is kind of destructive or deconstructive at least. And I'm sitting here just also remembering in the morning when I was thinking about this. I'm still a Christian, like I'm still living a Christian life. It's still sort of the center of the meaning of my life. And I think that we can get so focused on legitimate stuff that could or should change. But like, then I get these comments on the Facebook group from people who are living these faithful lives, sort of in in the background of all that, you know, and I just thought, yeah, it's maybe time to pay some attention to that. And since I get asked this often enough, I thought this could be a way to springboard that conversation.
1: You sent me over pretty pretty extensive notes or just thought provoking notes ahead of time, and they're they're not fragments, but they're like not entire paragraphs. So it was interesting to, to read through what seemed to be you kind of just jotting down some of the points either that you wanted to cover or just kind of your own thought process as you ostensibly worked through that question. Yeah. So I, I may refer to that a little bit, and at the beginning here, I I do think maybe you can just tell us, I mean, you have in here specifically an explanation of why you're not, and then you list several other categories. Do you do you feel like that would be a helpful thing to explain why you're not, for example, an agnostic, why you're not yeah. an atheist, and then talk a little bit about your understanding of the extent to which being born into a Christian culture and probably more importantly, family is part of how you understand your own locatedness within your faith right now?
0: Yeah, I think that's a a good place to start. So, yeah, I have kind of some bullet points here. Uh, Why I'm a Christian and not an atheist, not an agnostic, not spiritual but not religious, and then not another religion, right? So, sort of in that order. So, my problem with being an atheist, when I think of the word atheist, I think that that's someone saying the evidence, as far as I can tell, points to there is no God. I don't think that an atheist is saying, I know there's no God. You know, something – I think that's a straw man. I think it's just someone going, you know, based on what I can tell, I think there's no God. And I understand that people are atheists and that their experience slash education would lead them that way. But for me, I can't go there. And the main reason I can't go there is what's called the Goldilocks Enigma, also known as the Anthropic Principle. And this is the thing that's sort of countered with the multiverse theory. Now, there's a whole episode on this very topic that may have already come out by the time this airs or will be coming soon. So I won't spend a ton of time on it, but I'll give you some basics. So it's incredibly, incredibly unlikely that any particular universe would have the right conditions for conscious life to develop. I don't know a ton about physics, but basically there are these constants, like the gravitational constant, which in theory could be different. There are, I don't know, dozens of these constants. And basically to get them all in the right spot, assuming certain ranges that they might be, is like one in, you know, 10 to the 45th order or something like that. It's like something like if you have a one by one inch felt square – And you fire a bow and arrow at it, you have to hit that square from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe. It's like just astronomically impossible, basically impossible. So what some people say is, well, the multiverse would explain that. So maybe there are infinite or almost infinite number of universes, and we just happen to be awakening in the one that is that way. I think, uh, not to spoil that episode too much, I don't know that that solves the issue. Because rather than saying, well, an intelligent mind must have set the constants for this universe, you have to say, well, what kind of entity or whatever made it such that there would be an infinite number of universes coming all the time? Like you're kind of just kicking the can one step further back down the road to explain some kind of intelligence or intelligibility that makes it such that we can become conscious, that, we, that there could be carbon, which could form into biological life, etc. So I just don't feel comfortable with atheism, even if I didn't have religious experience, which we'll get to. I don't feel comfortable saying atheist because I currently don't have – like I think that some kind of mind, some kind of consciousness at the helm, so to speak, is a better explanation of the Goldilocks Enigma, the Anthropic Principle. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think so. You and I grew up in a similar non denominational Christian evangelical context. I was given some version of it, or the question that my mind, which is less keen when it comes to philosophy compared to you at least, is just has to do kind of with the Big Bang or like the whatever, however far you go back, whatever the sort of irreducible nub or point at which our universe began whatever your explanation is for that and i certainly subscribe to the idea of a big bang i have no reason not to doubt the physics there but like where where did all that matter that was condensed into something the size of a pinhead come from is that the argument essentially like there's there has to be some initial mover or creator or like where does all the stuff that reality where does reality itself perhaps come from it makes more sense to you that there is some intelligence or that the, the, it comes out of a creative act such that God seems more plausible to you than just like, well, it just – we don't know.
0: It's a, it's kind of like that. So the unmoved mover argument, right, right, is like if you take all the causes back, there has to be an initial cause and that cause must be God. I mean I th- that's interesting. This is kind of different. This is like just looking around at what we have. We now know how incredibly unlikely it was – for this to happen, just sure. massively unlikely, nigh impossible. And so it's more like what kind of math creates something almost impossible, probably a mind capable of like willfully setting these things. So it's either willfully set by a creative consciousness that ensures that they are all such that life can develop or it's chance, and if it's chance, it's going to have to be run billions and billions of times in yeah. order to get this one. What I'm saying is a, a billions of billions of universe generator is is possibly no less powerful or awe-inspiring or maybe even mind-like than a god creating one universe this way. You could also have god and multiple universes and just say, yeah, god is the multiverse generator or something like okay. that. Now, yeah. there's still a lot to unpack there, and I could totally understand someone disagreeing with me that, no, multiverse does really solve it. That's we could, we could talk about that. I have additional reasons for being a theist that we'll get to. Also, the multiverse is, as I understand it, in principle, unprovable and unverifiable. And so it's possible, but what we have in front of us is this incredibly fine-tuned universe. And that just makes me think, along with other stuff— yeah, it's something like God. I mean, maybe not the God you were taught about growing up or something, but something more like God than like nothing. You know?
1: Yeah. Let's move to experience, personal experience, because that's something you and I have talked about a lot, and I know is a big part of your your journey, your personal understanding or explanation for your own religious experience. And we've I've chosen to uh, allow us to spend you know the first six to eight minutes. Of our interview talking about the multiverse. <laughs> so let's get to something that maybe.
0: And I gave slightly... you uh, the baton, Ben, so that's your
1: <laughs> fault. <laughs> you gave me the baton and I immediately dropped it, like one of those tragic US 4 by 400 teams I was like, that would have done Okay, I can explain
0: them. this. You really want me to? <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Well, yeah. I'm not going to say my bad, our bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about your own experience and how that's to some extent a kind of backstop for your for your Christianity specifically to, I mean, just tell me in a nutshell, how does your personal, ex- what are you talking about when you say you have a personal experience of God or you have personal religious experience, which plays into your own, you know, worldview and spiritual beliefs. And then tell me a little bit about what that actually entails.
0: Yeah. So, so this is under that heading of why I'm not an agnostic. So you can imagine I would be convinced not to be an atheist But let's say I said, but beyond that, I don't think there's any evidence. Like none of the, no scriptures are, you know, especially true. I don't, you know, people are not to be trusted when they say they've experienced God. So maybe we just can't know anything about God, but we know that there's some other than the kind of mind capable of tuning the universe, right? You could say something like that. But the thing for me is I I do have religious experience. A lot of people have religious experience. Some people have it in prayer. Some people have it in religious services, in liturgy, in religious festivals, through fasting, you know, through pilgrimage. People have it hiking. They have them in nature sometimes. And for me, most of my religious experience has come through prayer, at least initially, and then I'll feel things, notice things in my regular life that remind me of that more, I don't know, pure or undiluted experience in prayer and hmm. you know I don't know I, I, can, I cannot claim to understand exactly what's going on I'm sure there's some event in my brain of some sort of hormone being released that makes me feel the thing that I feel to me that doesn't mean that that's not God that just means that everything that happens in my mind has a brain correlate as well which I believe is true anyway is it fair to say that you you feel like you have a felt?
1: experience of God. Part of the pie of what you're talking about when you talk about experience is kind of a loving, but also sort of mysterious kind of experience or felt experience or contact with the divine as you understand it. And part of it is like, yeah, some kind of either mental or physical contemplative meditative experience through silent prayer. And then part of it gets into this phrase that you've been using a lot over the last couple of years, which is moral intuitions but I mean is that fair I find myself rambling which is interesting to me because it's hard to put language to this stuff uh, and is, yeah so the, so the experience component I think when you talk about it what I assume you're talking about is is primarily prayer but also I guess in the simplest form just essentially a set of feelings or intuitions that you that you somehow channel into or interpret through kind of Christian theology that you've been given, which, again, is going to take us back to having been raised with a Christian worldview.
0: I'm pretty sure that most of that's going to come in later. So I'll just say this, that what I experience in prayer and then recognizing as a similar thing in the the rest of my life sounds like what other people experience who have been religious over the years, whether they've written books that I have read or had conversations with me about their experience. You know, if you just pick up some of the classic prayer texts, right, of of sort of famous praying Christians who have been authors, you can go, oh, yeah, it sounds like I'm experiencing what they experienced. So hmm. all I'm saying is that it appears that I have the kind of experience that praying, experiencing Christians have. <laughs> and i would and i would add cuz we'll get to it as a you know and people of other faiths that are very into prayer right that are yeah, regularly yeah. praying it's it's similar it's not the same obviously there are theological differences at this point all i'm saying is i can't really be an agnostic cuz an agnostic would say we can't know stuff about god but i'm here saying well i have this experience and so do billions of other people so it seems like we could know something Now, I might not know that I know it, you know, I don't have certainty about it, but that doesn't mean I can't know anything about God if a bunch of people pray and experience God, right? So that kind of moves me out of the realm of agnosticism.
1: You talk then about explicitly wanting to identify yourself as not falling into the quote-unquote spiritual but not religious camp, so maybe it's a good juncture at at which… I can ask you to to explain to me what the difference in your mind is between those two terms, religion and spirituality. Yeah.
0: People define this uh, different ways. Doug Shirley, who is a professor and a psychologist, was on the episode talking about faith change and family, divorce, kids. And he had his own definition. Mine is kind of similar. Here's how I think of it. I think of it like spirituality is basically a sense of the transcendent that people have. That there's something more than meets the eye. There's something, like, there's, like, true value in some way in this universe that we have access to in this life that goes beyond ordinary experience. So that's spirituality. Religion is, like, any sort of codifying of that by some group, which would include texts, rituals, you know, repeated behaviors, devotional practices and materials, like prayer books or the Psalms or creeds, right? So I'm religious because I use the architecture of Christianity as my way of relating to God, right? So I pray the Jesus prayer. I pray the Lord's prayer. I take the Eucharist. I don't oftentimes sing worship songs because I don't really like to, but I'm aware that they're there. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with them. I just don't prefer that, you know? So I'm, I'm using this Christian architecture, And so I think that means I'm religious. I'm not spiritual, but not religious. I'm also spiritual, but I appear to be religious.
1: I heard, I I genuinely don't remember who it was, but somebody used the analogy, religion is like the cup and spirituality is like the water. Interesting. Which I thought was evocative. Yeah,
0: it's a way to kind of take that impulse that most people have and put some form around it. And then what you get from that, is what we would also call a wisdom tradition, which you could apply to all the major religions and then even some not necessarily religious movements. Some people say Buddhism's not a religion. Stoic philosophy is not a religion, but it's a wisdom tradition. You know, it's like once you have a form, well, then you have common experience. And over the years, people can try different things out and they can report on how it went and they can have councils and they can discern as a group. As a congregation or as a larger group, as a global group with bishops as representatives, you know, in the Catholic Church, for instance, and they can kind of—they've got something to work with. If it's just spirituality, which, by the way, I think there are—the largest growing religious group in America right now is spiritual but not religious, right? They are the nuns. They don't say atheist. They don't say agnostic. They don't say Christian or any other faith. They are in the middle— and I think that people are there often, oftentimes for very good reasons, autobiographical reasons. They need to be there, perhaps. I think that they genuinely can connect with God through their spirituality. For me, and I would hope for people eventually, they could find a more regular expression. Not everybody. Some people are too traumatized, too wounded. That would never be healthy for them. But all things being equal, you know, there's so much benefit to being in a religious community if you can get past the shit, basically.
1: Yeah, well, we'll pretty much start with just asking you to talk a little bit about your family, but why you're not, not only one of those first three categories, but why you're not a member of some other religious tradition. I've met your parents. Your <laughs> dad knows my dad. We, Like I said, we both grew up on different sides of the Santa Cruz Mountains right. in and simil- a similar culture and certainly a similar uh, religious tradition. But beyond that, I'm sure there's a ton I don't know about your your upbringing as much as I might assume so so tell me what you think is relevant and what you want people to to know in this context in terms of you know maybe starting with adolescence or whatever give us the overview of of the context you grew up in and you know move quickly to explaining why and kind of how that fits into your understanding of Maybe what the odds were of you ending up something else right. and and why you're still a Christian now as you frame it.
0: I'll move as quickly as I damn well please, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I, I think you're right to bring up adolescence, right? I think that's when we start to take some ownership. So I was born into a non-denominational family, and I accepted Christ, I think, at age four. And I don't think I could have not accepted Christ. You know what I mean? Like, maybe, but... I'm sure I was drawn to some of the beautiful things about prayer. You know, there's a song my dad – I think my dad wrote it. Maybe my grandpa wrote it. I am Jesus' little lamb that he would sing to me every night. And it's beautiful, right? Like there's – obviously, I was drawn to something about the faith tradition that I was born into. But I'm making decisions at age four. Once we're in adolescence, now we're kind of talking, right? So why I am a Christian – why I was born a Christian – is essentially a matter of historical accident. I don't think there's any other way of saying it. If you're born in 2019, oh,
1: there's, o- there's a completely another way of saying it. Of course. Well, oh right, there's God, Calvinism. God meant for you to be born into that yes. family. Yes.
0: So there's like a there's. It's
1: not even necessarily a pure Calvinism. Which, anyway, I mean,
0: well, that's you yeah. know a
1: lot of Christians would say it was or it was you know god intended that you would be born to christian parents, so that's just not an, an accident of or dumb luck or yeah
0: something. you know so there's a way in which i could get behind yeah. that it's gonna hinge on whether or not there's an exclusivism behind it or not so if there's not an exclusivism and it's like look people can relate to god through a number of traditions but like i see some providence in me specifically being born into the Christian tradition, because it's a really good fit for me or something like that, that I could see that being beautiful and maybe affirming something Mm -hmm. like that. If Mm -hmm. it's, uh, no, other people of other traditions are screwed and God chose to have me be born a Christian because I'm elect, I can't get behind that. You don't accept that. I've never found that plausible. I just don't. I just don't see any reason to believe that. I mean, I don't even think that if I were convinced that the Bible was inerrant, which I'm not, I still wouldn't believe that because I would just be a different kind of Christian that didn't have to believe that,
1: right? So So in your view, it's happenstance. You happen to have been born into this family, and as a result, you were given this shape of reality.
0: Yeah, that's what I was given, right? And so in 1983, there was probably, what, a 40% chance that I would be born into a Christian home if I'm born in the year 1983. I got that lottery. I was born into a Christian home. Now, in some sense, it doesn't really make sense to even talk like that, right? Like— I wasn't like some disembodied... I don't think I was like some disembodied soul waiting for a body and like... You weren't a pachinko <laughs> ball waiting to like fall down into <laughs> reality. Right, exactly. So in some sense, it doesn't make sense, but it's kind of the clearest way to talk about the fact that there are historical and geographical accidents, right? Like, uh, Yeah, yes, I'm totally tracking. That were contextual. But then as I grew up, I really did start to encounter Jesus through kind of like punk rock, frankly, and related ways of seeing the world I had uh, in particular one really good Bible study leader in high school um, named Jamie Lunt and and he was just like a kind of a rebel he wore like ridiculous Hawaiian shirts and he loved like punk but and jazz and Marvin Gaye Uh, one time I went record shopping with him and I was like I don't have any Marvin Gaye albums should I get what's going on or let's get it on I was like, I recognize these 2 He's like, What's Going On is like the spiritual classic, and Let's Get It On is like all about having sex. And I was like, oh, so I should get What's Going On? He's like, no, I think they're equally good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I had people in my life that were like a genuine draw into this world and, and a number of other people, including my parents and a handful of pastors. So I had a better experience than some people. I, I saw God in a bunch of these adults, uh, and so I was drawn to it. And so that's why I stayed a Christian at that age, right? And then now, through all of my thinking and deconstruction and reconstruction, I I guess remaining a Christian is sort of the subject of most of the rest of this conversation. So maybe I'll I'll pause there and see if you have any clarifying stuff to ask. Well, I feel like we're
1: just getting started. Then you went to a then you went to Cal Poly, which had to have been a a hotbed of angst for some people. I mean, I know they have like an animal husbandry program. It wasn't, it wasn't Berkeley, but it was like, you know, that, that seems like, a, that's almost like more the phase of your life or the phase of your life that I know the least about. Right. So what you're entering college, you're studying philosophy. I know there was like a Christian community of some yeah. kind at that public school, but it can't have been majority conservative Christian. So like, what was your experience in college and, and, and how do you talk about that phase? You obviously, well, people may not know that you stopped going to school at that point and pursued music. But kind of, I don't know, in your, however you want to talk about your late teens into your 20s, that's that's the time when people move out of their house, at least for me, that yeah. a lot of the people that I grew up in the church with were like either hard out immediately as soon as they got out from under their parents' roofs or, you know, gradually just like re- really like pretty poignant kind of cross section that matches up with the parable of the the sower it's like this person's faith died out over 10 exactly, years yeah. this person's this person just like you know cannonballed into like a vegas lifestyle immediately this person just like couldn't overcome just felt like they they couldn't swallow it anymore philosophically so tell me about like what cuz I don't know. You strike me somebody who would have deconstructed way back then and hasn't been shy about being honest with your intellectual experience. So tell me tell me about late teens and, and 20s.
0: Yeah. So this is a really good question. I have not thought about this as much as I probably should have to answer this, but I have a few ideas. So first of all, I did go to a secular college. I went to a state school and I lived off campus with initially two drug dealers out of four other adults. So I was thrown in the deep end in a certain sense. But also Cal Poly had a thousand person weekly campus crusade for Christ gathering. Wow. So it was it had to have been one of the biggest in the country at a non-Christian school. I mean, I mean they wouldn't even need to have it at Christian schools, I guess. But so it was massive. So you could definitely live in a Christian subculture the whole time if you wanted to or mostly. Hmm. You know, I had roommates and I had friends I made in class and stuff. But there was a pretty big population of Christians. And most of all my good friends were Christians throughout college. Really, even into the touring years, with a few exceptions that I made, you know, good friends I made in other bands. Everybody in Sherwood was a Christian. So so some of that like if you want to talk about uh what's it called? Uh where things seem more plausible because of the group that you're in. You know what I'm talking about? Um uh.
1: You're not talking about confirmation. No, bias. it's not quite you're, that. You're
0: talking about um, like plausibility structures or or whatever. You, you yes, get the point. I, Where like yep. if you, you know, if you grow up in Westboro Baptist Church, like it doesn't seem weird at all to hold "God hates gays" signs at funerals, right? Because mm-hmm. it seems plausible. Like everyone around me believes this. Something big has to happen to sort of change that. So.
1: So you see this as like an extension of I was born into a Christian family and then I continued in like a Christian lane in college.
0: So that's what I'm I'm trying to say is not entirely, but there was at least a chunk of it where there wasn't that much pressure on me to like let go of it all. Most of my friends were Christian, but I was studying philosophy in a state school. I had one professor who I would now say was a Christian, although he was very cards close to the chest at the time. I think Mm. he's Catholic Mm -hmm. now. He was my favorite professor and is still my favorite college professor I've ever had to this day, and I I held on quite a bit to his faith in some sense. I I had a really memorable short interaction with him once in his office for, for office hours. As I was kind of in my first phase of deconstruction, I would now call it around 18, 19, and I was like, if I go through with this, basically this philosophy degree, and if I follow these threads where they're going to lead, am I going to lose my faith? And he said, you're probably not going to lose it, but it's going to look different than you think. And that was good enough for me to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'll keep going with this. Cause I was considering also switching majors and ended up not doing that. So yes, in one sense, you're right, Ben, that I have been deconstructing since I was 18. I started questioning hell around 19 or 20. I was arguing with Calvinists at Cal Poly when I was 18 about predestination and, and free will. But in another sense, I was partially shielded. I guess that's sort of the – that's not that wasn't a short answer, but that's the a short summation of it.
1: Well, that's great. At what point did you stop being shielded? Because I feel like you came out from the shield years ago.
0: Yeah. So I'm a person who's interested in theology and to some degree philosophy. I don't really claim philosophy because the people I know who are really into philosophy – are just much better at it than I am. I have a hard time reading philosophers in their original text most times. But I've I've read theology books since we were touring, you know, since 2021, 20, and other sort of like Christian thought books, you know, reading a Rob Bell book or a Dietrich Bonhoeffer book or something and like talking about that with some friends. So I've always kind of been interested in that. In some sense, I've sort of always been called towards ministry, if you want to call it that, although at a younger age, I wouldn't have known that that's what it was. But about six years ago, five, six years ago, I mark as a important moment in all of this for me. Mm -hmm. I began doing some contemplative practice, and I had direct experiences of God, I think, that shifted the balance for me. They they kind of changed the center of gravity. And basically how I would say it now what I think happened is that I had been holding on to a very rationalist Christianity. So I had taken the partial philosophy degree, I guess by 6 years ago I had finished it up here in Washington, but so I'd taken the philosophy bachelor's and my sort of, you know, pretty active mind and my debate skills. And I had fashioned out of all of that, like a rationalist Christianity that said, look, if all things went away, I couldn't deny the historical resurrection of Jesus or something like that. It was about the arguments, right? And five, six years ago, once I got that direct experience of God, I was able to let go of that because that's something I actually don't think is true. I don't think you can prove Christianity to any reasonable person I don't think that's true anymore, but I couldn't admit that. Personally, I couldn't admit that until I had that assurance from God that I was accepted and loved by God. It it was a feeling of grace, frankly. It's like, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to deserve this. Is that kind of a thing. If you've been listening to the show, you know that we have... A Patreon campaign where people can support the show financially and get access to a Facebook group that is for patrons only, as well as at least two, but I think soon to be more, uh, exclusive episodes only for patrons. Just this past week, we released one, another one uh, of the I Don't Believe in That God series, this time with comedian and podcaster Red Scott. Those are long form conversations between me and someone who does not consider themselves theist or religious, and we talk through it. I hear their story, we talk through uh, where we agree, where we disagree, what kind of a God is it that they don't in fact believe in, uh, and I'm always curious if I believe in that God or if I don't believe in that God either. Um, and again, we found some really interesting common ground and had a fantastic conversation. So if you'd like to be a part of the Patreon community, you can go to patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or you have permission, pod.com and click Become A patron, it's $5 a month, but there is a sliding scale. So if money is tight right now, and I imagine for a lot of you, given the pandemic, money is quite tight. Uh, If you're currently furloughed or unemployed or whatever, but you'd really like access to that Facebook group, that support group, and these uh, extra episodes, then email me and ask me about the sliding scale. Uh, No listener left behind. Uh, That email address is youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. All those links are in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the episode.
1: I think we should put a pin in where this is going in terms of wanting to talk about your understanding of other faiths, basically, and evangelism and whether you have any need or desire or obligation to convert other people to Christianity and talk about talk a little bit more about your your personal relational life. What what has your experience been amongst your friends, especially that you grew up with? What's it been just sort of in a factual, you know, even like percentage kind of a thing in terms of, you know, have a, have a lot of the people that you grew up with, have you seen them fall away? Have they uh, on the other hand maybe remained in a place that you would see as somehow more conservative than you are now. And then also I just really want to hear whatever the answer might be, because I don't really know what it's been like for your circle of friends, but what has that been like for you? How has that felt? What has it been like for your heart as you've seen people either be like, yeah, I'm not a Christian anymore, or Dan, are you still a Christian?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I would say there's sort of two waves and they've been mirror images of each other. So earlier on when I was a bit younger, I had more regularly the experience of friends leaving the faith or realizing that friends didn't believe anymore or weren't in active, you know, Christian practice anymore. And that was really hard for me. It was hard for, I think, a few reasons. Number one, genuine concern for them, especially back then. I really believed that people who were not, at least Americans, right? Like I I wouldn't have been confident saying this about people in India or something, but At least Americans who were raised like I did, who left that behind, were really playing with one arm behind their back in life. That's how I would have thought about it. And to some degree, I still think of it that way, although it's a lot more nuanced now. And I I would be a lot more willing to like discount that for people's individual stories than I was then. Because the other side of it was that it was an affront on my own identity. Right. Mm -hmm. So David Bazan breaking up with God or whatever was like. But he was one of us. And so what does that say about me? And what is this anxiety I'm feeling around him leaving? You know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it was it was more like that. I'm sure it was also difficult to talk to those friends. I think that especially given what I have learned about my own personality, most of them probably just drifted away from me on purpose at that point because especially in my early 20s, for instance, I couldn't let something like that go, I would probably try and engage them in like semi-debate-style conversations over and over again, which they probably didn't want to do, and I get that now. And then the, the mirror side of that is, is what's been going on more recently, especially with some of the public podcasting work kind of being out in the world. Well, many of my friends did remain Christians, I should say. In fact, I, I would say, for me, in terms of close friends over time, definitely more than half have remained I don't know that that's normal. I'm not sure what the numbers are. Yeah, I don't know. But really most of my close friends. And what's happened more recently is that a lot of those friends who retain more conservative impulses, theological beliefs, etc., I can tell sometimes that I am not safe for them in some way. That Hmm. I'm—that, you know, maybe my heart is right. Like, if they're my friend, I'm sure they think my intentions are good— but at the end of the day, I'm probably leading people astray and doing mm. more harm than good. Huh. And it comes up and I, I I just not that we have to do this on air, but you're not one of those friends, even though you do have more conservative intuitions than me. And I actually really appreciate it about you. I've never felt that way with you. Probably wouldn't have asked you to do this if I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a number of friends and these are good people, right? I mean, this is not I think it's a natural thing for them it's maybe a natural consequence of their theological convictions and their, Hmm. their faith story, but it's painful for me. Uh, It's something I've really, I've been thinking about recently. I've reached out to some theologically liberal people who are, you know, theologians of some sort or in this kind of world for longer than I have been and asking them how they've dealt with it, because it's kind of become a pastoral question for me personally of like, how can I be faithful in this situation when people who I love and who love me And who I think that we are like literally after the same thing actually think I'm dangerous to Mm -hmm. the world. And they don't say that very often. They definitely don't say it straight to me. But, you know, I'm trying not to be paranoid about it. I don't think it's there all the time. But I've seen evidence of it at least a few times. And it's got to be there more often than I see because it's not the kind of thing you tell somebody. So that's actually been a, a hard thing for me recently hard, you know, in a way that it used to be hard for people to leave the faith. And now it's maybe harder for me as we'll get into, I'm, I'm much more open to like how God deals with people who are not explicitly religious or explicitly Christian. So I'm a little Mm -hmm. less worried about that. And now it's more like, geez, like are my moral intuitions and my theological convictions like really this scary to people or this, I don't know, unnerving or destabilizing. That's the word I wanted. So that's just um, – that's kind of what I've been dealing with like literally just in the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about that.
1: Yeah. I don't think it will surprise you uh, to hear me say that. <laughs> I, think, I think they are. <laughs> I think they are scary to people.
0: Yeah, you know? right.
1: I mean it, you, you know that and that's why.
0: Well, we're talking about identity, right? We have
1: such a broad – yeah. I mean you just look at the spectrum of expressions of Christianity just in our country and you can understand, yeah, why it's threatening to some people. It could be a good time to go back and just talk now a little bit more about what you were touching on there in terms of kind of your stance towards or, or probably more accurately your your understanding of God's stance towards pretty much everybody, but certainly specifically for our purposes, people who aren't self-identified Christians or whoever right. who, who don't fit Whatever your, you know, anybody who is a Christian's understanding of what Christian orthodoxy would be. I mean, there's a number of things I could ask you about here, but maybe give me an opening statement. I mean, what is your understanding at this point in your life and in your faith journey of as kind of the final step or thought in this chain that we've constructed of why you're still a Christian and why you're not an atheist and why, after all this time, you're not a member of another religious tradition, which I guess you could talk a little bit about because we didn't even necessarily right. talk about the extent to which you've really investigated other religious traditions or felt compelled or or driven to do that. But what's your understanding of, yeah, God's stance toward... An atheist, God's stance towards uh, a devout Jew who rejects the idea that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, or, you know, uh, an animist tribesman living in the jungle somewhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, so here's where I just really want to be just extra clear that this stuff shifts over time. This is where I'm at today. Uh, I I feel like I've been headed this way for quite a while. It doesn't seem—it's not willy-nilly, but— yeah ask me 10 years right it it might be different the shortest answer to what you just asked is that god interacts exactly the same with all god's creatures at every instant all the time so no matter if you are an atheist if you are a severely many mentally handicapped person if you are whatever an an animist in a tribe in new guinea at every moment god is drawing creatures toward God, toward the good, toward love, in whatever way God can do that in the moment. So that's, I think, the way to understand how I think of it organizationally. So since I was raised in a Christian family, how is God going to do that? Probably God's going to do that through Christianity. And it actually would make a lot of sense to do that because within the Christian tradition, we have everything we need to follow God, basically. And so God does not need to go, you know, Dan, you were raised Christian, but actually the Taoists have it more close to right. So what I'm going to do is get a Taoist missionary over to San Jose, California, and hopefully he will do his work and knock on your door. And then if he tells you the truth and you hear it once, well, now you're accountable and if you reject it, that's on you. You see how it starts to kind of feel weird thinking that way? Like wouldn't it just be that God would use whatever is in my life that in any way points back to God to draw me that direction? That's that's how I think of it now. That's the Cliff's notes.
1: Yeah, there's beauty to that idea as I hear you explain it, tell me how it fits into this question. Do you, you know, for our purposes, let me just draw you out a little bit more on this. Do you in any sense or on any level give what we might think of as pride of place to Christianity within the context of, you know, either systems for living or ways of understanding reality is Christian in any sense I don't want to muddy the water here, but even even aside from that term or that self-identification, to the extent that you believe that, that there is a God and that Jesus Christ was not only, you know, obviously historically confirmable as a person who lived, but the actual son of God and that these claims about him are true, even if we would kind of temporarily suspend a lot of this religion that has grown up after him, is there any sense in which that God... And his son, you know, we don't even have to get into Trinitarian theology, but Christianity, as we kind of, on its most basic level, understand it to be, is that the or a superior system of belief, way of engaging reality, or is there some sense in which you believe that, you know, to use the old cliche even if it, if you would say that it's that there is one god and god is the one who uses this method that that you know essentially all paths can lead to the top of the mountain. That was a classic thing that that I heard growing up in my church. All paths don't lead to the top
0: of the mountain. Yeah, I used to hate hearing something like that, right? I'm not and and I don't think that that's quite what I'm saying, which we can we can get to the mountain analogy later. We don't have to.
1: (laughs) I don't really love it, but but I'm just trying to to get at, like, you know, is Christianity, this idea of Jesus being the way, the truth, the life, even if you're not an exclusivist, which we need to talk about, like, is there any, yeah, do you give pride of place to Christianity?
0: Okay, so I do is the really short answer. The longer answer is that that's the right thing for me to do, given when and where I was born and what I've experienced in the Christian tradition. So... The Christian tradition includes this stuff about, like, you know, the radicalness of the particular, the scandal of the particular in the person of Jesus that, like, many people commonly would think that, like, God couldn't show up in human form. Humans are gross. They're nothing compared to God. And the scandal of the incarnation is like, no, like, all of creation and humanity is, is, like, shot through with the divine, open to the divine – can be participated in by the divine. So in that sense, I have to say it has pride of place. What I'm worried about is the word, you use the word superior at one point, and that Mm. implies comparison. And that is a little different, right? So I don't think, like there is someone right now having a conversation on an Islamic podcast and they're asking each other, but isn't Islam superior to Christianity and Judaism and Buddhism and stuff, and if I were listening to that, I would go. I don't think it is, right? But like, so why do I get to say that to them? And I, I'll say more about like why I don't think I can. It, it really has to do with like I don't actually. I don't think I have the evidence to say that. So I'm worried about the word superior. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, and I and okay. so this is kind of how I'd like to close the answer to this is like I, I'll tell
1: you when you can close the answer. <laughs>
0: Give me that baton back. Um, So I believe that God showed up uniquely in Jesus of Nazareth. I believe that the disciples and other people around Jesus experienced God profoundly through the person of Jesus. By the way, they experienced God long before he died or was raised again. So there's something going on there. And that does not mean that God does not show up in other kinds of ways, other places also. I certainly believe that God would show up to creatures on some other planet if they exist. Why can't I believe that God would show up to people living in a culture that is completely disconnected from first century Palestine, right? Either by time or by cultural understandings, whatever the distance is, I think I can robustly proclaim most sort of basic Christian Orthodox doctrine without the exclusive part where it's just like – Maybe it's Christianity and, you know? Mm. Yeah.
1: Makes me want to ask about basically the idea of objective truth, you know, maybe capital T truth existing versus the possibility of it existing and us not being able to ever fully know it. We, You and I have talked plenty about certainty, and I know that that's something you've thought a lot about, certainty and or the the lack of our ability to get it. We both loved the book The Myth of Certainty by Daniel Taylor. Loved it. Yeah, how does... I mean, I can imagine... Maybe this is a bad argument, you tell me, but it, it like, leaps to my mind that there's, in different contexts, plenty of things where you'd be like, yeah, I'm, no, you're... That that is... That is a bad idea to like hold your hand in fire or whatever and you wouldn't you wouldn't be reticent to make a judgment which is what we're talking about. You feel reticent about making, you know, a value statement or a judgment. Right. That's so you don't want to say that something is superior which I, right. I, has interesting inevitable like reverberations around forgive me for saying it almost but like the thing that came to my mind was like political correctness or a kind of you know, maybe healthy, maybe wise, but also sort of, to some extent, like, are you aware of it being an of-the-moment fear of being seen as, as judging someone who is different from you? Because there's such a cultural gap. I will gap not be- forgive you
0: for suggesting that,
1: But There's such a cultural <laughs> gap between, I mean, like, just between so many Christians and also between... This is really another layer I'm adding onto this but certainly you like really yeah the yeah. the you know the Hindu woman who lives in Abbottabad in central India it's like what tell t- unpeel for me a little bit more like what that seems important to think about like the extent to which it's something you're uncomfortable doing maybe there's a very good reason
0: but I maybe, yeah so it's possible I that I am virtue signaling to all my libs or whatever but I'm pretty sure that it's really an argument about what kind of evidence would you need to say X.
1: So this is the yeah, this is the certainty piece or lack thereof, yeah. and it's kind of the you bar see it as is a kind of intellectual just, humility.
0: Yeah, it's intellectual humility. So uh, if you're saying hey, this is probably a bad idea for people to do, well, okay, what kind of evidence would you need for that? So you might need psychological studies. You might only need a doctor to say when you shake a machete around, you cut off people's appendages. Right? That's a bad idea. That's sufficient information. That's all you need to say. That you don't need to know what it was like to grow up in a machete wielding society to know <laughs> that a machete will cut off your hand, right? But if you're going to tell me that people cannot access the God of the universe through Buddhism, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna call bullshit and say, the bar of evidence is much higher than you think it is. To say well, something that's
1: like that. That's different than superior, though.
0: Well, okay, I mean, so great. Because I feel that's like it fits, in. Yeah.
1: it fits in. It fits in with, to some extent, I feel like that idea or that language, which I didn't actually intentionally grab, but we've taken up now, this idea of superior, which, which I think is fair. I mean, Freudian I think there's like a, a, a huge, pretty safe assumption to say that historically most you know, Christian thought leaders, <laughs> to use the contemporary <laughs> phrase, would say, yeah. yeah, Christianity is a superior worldview or system of belief. So, yeah, I know they would so, have said that, yeah. So, yeah, w- uh, we both do. Why Why is it I just think
0: they're going problematic beyond the if it has, to say that.
1: Well, but you've just said that it has—oh, how can I quote you back to yourself? <laughs> I can't quite remember exactly what you said, but that you seem to be acknowledging that your understanding is that Christianity is, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but kind of the the best way, the clearest pane of glass to look through, or the the best way to access God. I think what you said was we have everything in Christianity that we need to know and follow God, something yeah, like that.
0: We have whatever we need. That doesn't mean that other traditions don't also have what they okay, need.
1: Okay, so you don't yeah. you don't think that a Christian has anything more than a devout.
0: Muslim. So I, I do in the kind of boring sense, right? In the sense of like, you can't disbelieve something that you believe. So I was raised Christian. I live as a Christian. I don't live as a Buddhist. So in a kind of a boring sense, yeah, I definitely think Christianity is better than Buddhism. But that's just in, that's the same as saying, I apparently thought that this Vortex IPA would be the best thing to drink tonight because it's what I chose to drink. I'm not saying that it's actually better than all other IPAs. That would be a different thing to say. So it's like – and a lot of the stuff with Christian doctrine, I mean, take, take the line from the creeds. Uh, I think it's from the Nicene Creed. Consubstantial with the Father, okay? This is a claim about Jesus' divinity. This is the hypostatic union of substances between God and man in Jesus Christ. I do not know what the hell that means, and I I wonder if there are ten thousand people who really know what that means living today. Like, what does it mean for God's substance and human substance to commingle one hundred percent of each in a body, in a soul, in a what, in what kind of container, what kind of entity? All I'm saying is that this stuff is mysterious, right? So when when we get to claims like that, what I like to say is I infer those claims based on my lived experience of Christianity. So I live as a Christian. I experience God as a Christian through Christian practice and worship and words. And so I infer that these basic Christian claims are true, but I don't have access to those claims. I have no idea what divine substance is like. And there have been... Theologians and philosophers over the years, uh, more so I think in the Middle Ages than now, who thought they really could know what they were talking about when they talked about divine substance and human substance, I'm no longer convinced that I can know what I'm talking about with those terms. It's just beyond my pay grade. I think of theology, people always say theology is faith-seeking understanding. I love that phrase. We're using words imperfectly to describe basically the experience that we have as Christians in the world. And that's great. And that's, and we do need to use language. That's why I talk about theology on this podcast, but it's really about theological and intellectual humility for me to stop Mm. short of anything like superior. So here's the nub of it. I know. I'm
1: not, I'm not trying to push you to say that. I'm just trying to draw you out because I really want to understand. And I think you want people to be able to understand.
0: Yeah. So this is a big part of it. This is a big puzzle piece for me. Let's go back to that Muslim podcast we just intuited. And let's say they are talking about Christianity and the heresies of Christianity and what they see when they look at the television and see American Christians acting in such and such a way. And they conclude at the end of their podcast episode, see, Islam's right and Christianity is wrong. Now, if I heard this episode, assuming it was not in Arabic, and I understood it, I would... I would feel like, guys, you don't understand. Like, you have just minimized – you've just, like, made a ton of Christians the same who are not the same. Uh, You are talking about, like, a particular kind of evangelical Protestantism that's tied to politics and, like, there's other kinds of Christianity that are nothing like that, uh, that have totally different assumptions about God or whatever. So just think of all the detail that I could marshal in response to that Islamic podcaster that we've made up. Yes. Why is it not the same if I have a podcast episode about Buddhism? Why well, is it not start, that someone could go, "No, dude, you don't get it." I think well, they that could. they're right, and I, I mean, don't could, have they access they to that.
1: They could, but it doesn't. That doesn't, of course, like touch any ob- objective truth or reality to the shape of right. the universe that may or may not exist right. be there. You know,
0: it, but it does talk about our access to that truth. So I'm, I'm not a relativist about truth. I believe there is a fact of the matter about any propositional question you can ask. What I don't think is that it's easy to know that I have the right answer to those more complicated questions. That's the difference. So what I'm saying about if the Muslim podcaster is talking, I'm like, no, dude, you don't have access to sufficient information and experience to make that claim about Christianity. Let me fill you in on the information and experience that I have had As someone who was raised in Christianity, I know it better. And what I'm saying is I don't know what it would be like to be raised in these other cultures, these other uh, religious systems where I would have totally different imagery. I would have the way that my own language lined up with topics about the transcendence of God or experience would be different. You know, art, the way that I think about. Art and the divine would be different. Just so much is different. That's a black box to me. I just don't have access to it. And because I don't have access to it, I basically don't have the necessary evidence to say that it's wrong. Now, it might be wrong, and I'm not saying there's no fact of the matter, but I don't have access to it. That's what I'm saying.
1: What do you do with that? Like, What do you do with the fact that we seem as human beings so badly to want order and explanations and codifiability and that there's something true. And what you're saying at, at the very least, at, at least as regards our ability to understand and get inside on the level we would need to get inside the head and experience of somebody in a very different culture.
0: That's maddening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll bring it back to politics. That's like the way you're feeling right now is how, you and I both felt in November of twenty sixteen when the, you know, poll numbers came back for white evangelicals. And yeah. to you know, whether or not that was the right thing to do and in terms of political expediency and whatever, it was certainly contradictory to what we were raised with those people having said our whole lives about politics. And so we're like, what the hell is going on? I would say some of this is an extension of what I have tried to figure out and learn about human psychology since that day, November 9th, Mm. the day after the election when that Mm. Pew data came back. Uh, That sent me on a journey, among other things, to like figure out what is it that we're doing. And I think that when someone says, well, at least at the end of the day, I know that I'm in the right religion. It's the superior religion. We are the ones that really know God. That's doing a lot of heavy psychological lifting for that person. I don't know exactly what it's doing, but it's doing work. And it's giving them all kinds of benefits in the moment anyway to feel, I don't know, purpose, to feel belonging, to feel identity, to feel, you know, in, in, a, in a negative sense, to feel superiority over some other people out there that I don't really know much about. I'm, I know you know, Ben, about outgroup homogeneity bias where in our own group we, we just saw this with the podcasters in you know the islamic podcasters example i know all the detail and the variations just within my saw own this. group <laughs> and right they don't exist and and i and i think muslims are all the same right or whatever and muslims think <laughs> oh american christians are all the same but i know all the you know shia and sunni and sufis and i know all these you know because we just have that that's like another one of these biases that we have As people. So I guess I would just say, if you ask me something like, well, why is it that so many Christians are so prone to thinking that they have it right and other people have it wrong? Is that because they really do have it right? Or is it like that's just like a natural psychological thing? I'm just far more likely to say it's the latter.
1: Well, let's come at this from a final and really important angle, which is evangelism, essentially. Like, do you think evangelism is misguided. How how do you think about anything that would fall into that category? Telling other, you know, sharing with other people. To some extent, you do it. I mean, it's sharing with other people about your experience of God. But then, of course, when we hear that word, what we think of is actively attempting to convert other people to your faith tradition or way of viewing the world. What do you do with both kind of all the baggage you have with that and just where where you go philosophically, and I think this is this is, this is an issue on which I feel like we have to address, if only broadly, a pretty consistent call to some kind of sharing or witness or evangelism in the Bible.
0: Yeah, I would say I am totally for evangelism in a way that the ends never justify ungodly means, no matter what. There is no soul-saved count at the end of the mission trip or the end of the year serving in Ecuador or whatever it you got going, nothing ever is worth doing anything unloving to any of God's creatures. So yeah, I evangelize. That's what this podcast is. It's basically an ev- evangelical tool for a more liberal understanding of Christianity that is nonetheless truly faithful, I hope. Right. And like, I'm getting the message out. I'm a good talker and thinker or, or whatever. Not, when I, not if I say it like that.
1: I'm the decider.
0: <laughs> so basically, completely non-coercive even evangelism, where we are proving the truth, if you will, of our faith by loving our neighbor effectively. 100 percent, man. Great. Sign me up. I try to do that. I hope I will do better at it. The problem is the history of mission work. I think this is, by the way, changing quite a bit, even in fairly conservative schools and and missions organizations. But the, the vast majority of the history is tied to some kind of colonialism, tied to some kind of Western civilization superiority complex. And there's a lot of exploitation. There's a lot of ignoring the needs of the actual people you're meant to minister to. There's a lot of quotas. You get those numbers so that people back home will give you money because they are working out some unhealthy shit of their own by supporting this missionary. I mean, whatever, you could Well, we can fill it we in. can
1: let me jump in cuz we can I think we can agree that that's not healthy, but also that there's a more there's a more ancient biblical and immediately post-biblical tradition right. of Christians going around and telling people about Jesus Christ starting with Paul and the apostles. Yeah, continuing up to today. So, I mean, like pointing a case study or example would be to share that I have a friend. I went to Biola University, which is a conservative evangelical school in L.A. There's an entire what's called
0: the School of Intercultural Studies. My wife got her degree in that.
1: Yep. In I know Jeffrey. School. Yeah. Jeffrey went with me and went to his ICS major. So I had numerous friends who went. And one woman who I'm still in touch with and is still a good friend of mine has been a missionary ever since she graduated, and she is truly an amazing woman of God, like just such a compassionate, loving, radiant person who just exudes the divine. Uh, and she's given her life to telling Muslims in you know the developing world the story of Jesus Christ. And I definitely won't speak for her, but I think... She's probably, you know, evolved in her thinking as well, but to some extent, I think it's probably safe to say has an understanding, and if she doesn't, then there's a million people who could stand in for her, that that person as a type is driven by an understanding of a kind of necessity to do that work. And yeah. I I think you can couch that in terms of something that is, you know, maybe pretty analogous to my understanding of of your theology at this point, which is that this is the best Possible story that people could understand. Uh, of course, you know, discarding not only colonialism, but you know, any kind of just just work with like the best possible version of your own theology that you can imagine. What what do you do that that the missionary you know would be sharing the story of a loving God who who came to Earth and you know has shot the whole you know of reality through with his glory, as you so beautifully put it. Is that misguided? Is that something that, that does need to be done? Are you indifferent to it? Because some of what you sent me was like essentially boiled down in my understanding to like, I don't feel compelled to to convert anyone else to Christianity, and I don't think they should feel compelled to convert me to their religion.
0: Right. So being compelled is different than sharing your experience, sharing what you know, Sharing information about a tradition that someone might not be aware of. That's different than compulsion. So I don't, I obviously don't doubt the motives of your friend or that she is perhaps doing quite good work. If it looks like we're going to give you all a crash course on Christian versus Islam debate 101, and when they say this, here's the answer you give back to them to win the argument, I think I'm out on that. I think that would be a waste of someone's life. If it's something like, I feel called to live in a Muslim country and share the love of Christ with Muslims. Well, then the doors are wide open. There is There are innumerable beautiful ways you could do that that are not a compulsive thing and that are not coercing anybody to convert or something like that. I think if I were to be a missionary in a Muslim country, I would spend two or three years just listening and asking questions and making sure I actually understood what we disagreed on and what we didn't disagree on. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, because there's all kinds of really interesting comparative theology that goes on around the world. And, you know, uh, something interesting, that's on an episode that will probably come out before this one, Andrew Schwartz saying that, like, a process theologian Christian and a process theologian Jewish rabbi agree on far more things about God than a process theologian Christian and a fundamentalist evangelical Christian. Right, So, like, you have to ask a bunch of questions to figure out where you're really at. I think if we just come in saying, look, we have the truth. We're just lucky to have it. And I know you don't believe me, but you got to just listen to this truth. I don't think we should say that. And I, I just don't think we can ignore the history of how this has actually gone down mm-hmm. in so many places. And so I like what the Catholic Church says about other religions— primarily we should listen and learn from them. That's the first thing we should do. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to ask us about Christianity, if they're going to consider converting, great. But I think that has to always come second. That's my take. And uh, she and I might disagree on that. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I want to press you a little further on this, just so I'm clear. Do it. Essentially, no need for Christians to be actively, from anywhere in the world, whether it's South Korea or Austin or Seattle, to be Again, I think historical context is really important, but it feels to me like there's a little bit of straw man that, that continually creeps into your sure. rebuttal or yeah. you're, you're responding to a, something that neither of us would want. Or this is going to be more productive if we try to, if I try to channel you towards just your – to the extent that you are saying you give <laughs> the, the part of you that, that is willing to say there's some kind of pride of place that you give to Christianity or Christianity is the best easiest way to, to have a an understanding of an interaction with God. No need, and in fact, we should be really kind of cautious about any Christian ever going to people who've been raised outside of the Christian tradition, or even, let's make it more extreme, like the many millions of people who really don't have much or any working understanding of the most, the basics of the gospel or who Jesus is. I think sometimes people think that that's Overused, but there surely are like several million people at least on the surface of the planet at any given time who've just straight up never heard of Jesus Christ. Right? No, no need for any Christian to go. We should just say, you know what? God is God is a just God. God is going to deal justly with them. God is going to draw all people to Himself using whatever is available. Because we don't need to be fearful. All, all of the admonitions and the seeming example of the apostles and the church fathers. We're just going to you're out on that or in terms of like really being feeling feeling moved by that to to think that there would be something good about
0: telling that story there's something interesting especially about those kind of people that's a lot closer to what it would have been in the early church but i would say look i don't think anyone's going to hell so that's not the motivation Mm -hmm. so the motivation would have to be just loving an increasing number of people in our world like, and some people being called to do that abroad. And I would say, great, go love them. And if they don't know anything about the Christian tradition, then that's probably going to come up when you start loving them. Right. And it may become necessary to start a school or whatever if there's no information there. But, like, just let the loving be the thing and let the didactic teaching stuff be second yeah. And only if they ask, basically, or if they say, hey, will you s- train us? Or, hey, will, you know what I mean? Like, we want to know more about this Jesus. Okay, fantastic. Let's do it. But, like, they only trust you because you have opened a clinic. You know what I mean? Like, that's what they needed right now. So that's kind of more what I'm saying. It's not that there's, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm not afraid of their eternal destination, I want them to know God better, which is also what I want you to do and my wife to do and all my classmates. You know what I mean? I just want that for everybody to know God better. And there's just no, there just shouldn't be any bait and switch. You know, we're going to give you a backpack for your kids after you listen to this sermon, you poor Mexican San Jose residents, which is something I went to with my mom one time and we left. <laughs> You know, like, that that stuff is bad. That's wrong. That's not Christ-like. That's not what what Jesus was like. And it's this later addition, which I think you're agreeing to. And yeah, that's a straw man, so we don't have to keep going down that road. I mean, it's not a straw man, because I literally encountered that 10 years ago. But it's not the more robust example you're trying to give me as, as a counter. I get that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just even in the example of Jesus, like, he—maybe that's fruitful to look at him, because he— he did so much materially for people. He was just with them. Yeah. He healed them. He fed them. He loved them. He he broke, you know, so many different kinds of boundaries. And he sure taught a lot.
0: Yeah, but he's also Jesus. I mean, there's uh, there's obviously going to be a order of magnitude there between what he did and what we're supposed to do. Interesting response. Okay, so yeah, I mean he's the I'm not, guy i'm not
1: jesus is your response
0: i mean it's one of it's part of it like i certainly can't speak with the same authority that jesus spoke with like i i need i, didn't I have ask to, be you to i'm just pointing out no a, i know his, i know
1: him as an example and saying or we can talk about paul if you want we can talk about thomas barnabas anybody i mean yeah yeah i yeah. don't know i mean maybe, maybe I, we've taken this one as far as we can
0: yeah i think we have but uh, we still have more to talk about cuz we got to talk about uh, I
1: have at least two other big categories that I want to talk with okay, you about. Okay, great. One is but what I mean, state of the union here or should we put something on the whiteboard? What do you want to make sure we I get to? I just want
0: to make sure we get to the things about Christianity that have drawn me over the years. Ah, before uh, at, oh. at least at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I
1: feel like okay, that's great. Yeah, let's let's do that now and make sure we get it in and okay. I don't know, you know.
0: So I'll just kind of say some stuff and you can ask for follow-ups if you want. But yeah. First of all, the incarnation, which is a specifically Christian doctrine that God becomes man, right? That is just it is the most robust grounding for the concept of human dignity that uh, I think is imaginable. I think in, an infinite or a near infinite God or whatever becoming finite, this is just, you know, just the kind of God that can, can create a universe being fully present in a person in a manger being put to death is just like the ultimate example of humility and is something that you, you just you can't ground your own humility in anything greater than that. And so that that's a big one for me. Justice and God's preferential option for the poor. You know, I was talking about this with somebody two nights ago and I was like, "Look, I need like, woe to the rich for you have received your reward. Because globally speaking, I'm rich. So how should I understand that wealth? I think I need to understand that wealth through the perspective of Jesus' teachings. Like, otherwise I'm going to trust in that wealth. I'm going to, I'm going to think about that wealth in, in really unhelpful ways. And so the biblical, kind of continual preferential option for the poor is just like it's just like a counterweight that in our consumeristic and wealthy society and in this wealthy city that I live in I just need that I need that all the time to to balance out you know just various impulses to have retail therapy cuz I can afford to and you know like I can afford to basically put as much carbon into the atmosphere as I want I basically could put almost unlimited carbon into the world, given the kinds of stuff that I like, you know, if I had finer tastes, (laughs) maybe I couldn't, but like, I can pretty much max out my carbon output pretty easily. And a lot of people can, you know, living in the, in urban centers in the States. So those are two things. I got one more before we get to the Sermon on the Mount and I'll give you a chance to to hop in. The last one is just of these three is Jesus hanging with sinners. Um, I think I picked up on this in the early punk rock days and it's never left me that I've always in some sense felt more comfortable around non-Christians in, in, in certain categories, not obviously my close friends, you know, but like just in, in a regular population setting and just thinking about various kinds of the marginalized, you know, there, there are marginalized people that I'm not comfortable spending time with, especially really poor people, uh, really, uh, dirty, um, you know, homeless type people. I, I don't do a good job. My intuitions, my my disgust mechanisms kick in and I am drawn away from them. And I think I need that example of Jesus to like, again, as a counterweight to that kind of natural psychology. So those are, those are three things before the Sermon on the Mount, which is like a big long list. So I'm wondering if you have anything to say on, on any of those three.
1: Those are all great. Those are all, yeah, wonderfully compelling things
0: people only had to listen to 80 some minutes before we got to what i actually like about christianity.
1: Oh man, well <laughs> forgive me. We should have we should have got we should have got into that. That's no, fine. But it sounds like the capstone is the sermon on the mount.
0: It is a capstone. Yeah.
1: So what do you mean when you said that it's kind of of all the things that attract you to christianity it's Yeah. the what is it? It's kind of the capstone here. Let
0: me just i'm going to bowl you over with all of them <clears> in a row and then we'll just go. see where that leads us. I need Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers. I need love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I need whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And for that matter, I need the Lord's prayer. I need where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I need you cannot serve God on money. I need consider the lilies and consider the birds of the air. I need take the log from your own eye And judge not, lest you be judged. Uh, And in an increasing variety of contexts, I need the way is narrow that leads to life, not in a salvation sense, but as an overall discerning principle. And I need, finally, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, neither can a bad tree bear good fruit, because otherwise I don't know how to discern that I'm even on the right path with all this faith change and doing this podcast and you know bringing a, a new life into the world and and all that discernment. So that's like my big, that's my big rousing closer from the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, do any of those ones jump out to you as like particularly relevant either to your own need for Christianity or to stuff that's relates to this conversation we've been having? Mm.
1: I mean, the stuff about money, I think has been increasingly a big thing as I enter middle age and make a little bit more money and have a mortgage and stuff like that. I mean, our friend Josh, I've had some really poignant conversations with him over the years about not living for your mortgage and his examples is a good one. But yeah, I think just that like you and I are both David Bentley Hart fans, Mm -hmm. fanboys to some extent. And we read that essay, Christ's rabble a couple of years ago. And just, it's like, I've actually also had some poignant conversations with my dad about, you know, he's in his mid sixties and it's just, he made a comment to me at one point where he was like, he, he's, he's a guy who has a, a real ability to be compassionate toward himself. So it wasn't really too, like, too much self-recrimination, but just like, you know, have I just participated in late American capitalism for so much of my life that like to really like embrace Jesus's teachings about poverty and financial sacrifice are like, how do I even measure that? we're just up to our eyeballs. I feel like I'm so up to my eyeballs and swimming in the water of American cultural capitalism that, yeah, those in particular, particular stick out to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, that resonates with me a lot. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I'm of many minds, not just two on those kind of big financial questions, you know, wanting to provide for Jaffrey and our soon to be son. And, you know, All of that, but like also recognizing that we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, essentially. And so, what does provision mean when you're dealing with exponential numbers like that? You know what I mean? Uh, It's surely not as much as we think, is probably plenty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, yeah, that's, but like, that's what I'm saying. I need this as a counterweight to living in capitalist America. I just don't know how I would do it otherwise. Well, I, I
1: then you know, the other one, the other one that jumps out to me is the the last one you listed there. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit; a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. I just want to ask, what if what if a tree seems bad, but James Dobson says the tree is a baby
0: <laughs> Christian? <laughs> you can't go there. Uh, out of bounds. Trump's out of bounds. All right, all right okay. okay,
1: all right, okay. Uh, <laughs>
0: but no, but I mean, in, in, there is a sense in which it's circular, right? Like I have had a conversation with someone in my life who was like I trust Franklin Graham he's a good humble Christian man who's brought thousands of people to Christ Yeah, and I trust his word above the media or something like that yeah Yeah, I mean there's not much to say Uh, we're looking at the same data here actually we're not we're looking at some of the same data and some different data so yes there is ambiguity inherent in this but at least good fruit bad fruit is like something to start with You know, and uh, I don't know, maybe it's just a way to convince myself that I'm not leading people astray because there is some part of me that's just like, I'm an anxious person. You know, I have, I have panic disorder, as you know, that's in remission right now. It's not flaring up. I haven't had a panic attack in a long time, but I am an anxious person naturally. And there is some part of me that I know will never get rid of that fear of like, what if I'm wrong? And actually the fundamentalists have been right all along and I've just been blind to it, even though the evidence is really shitty and, you know, whatever. Fill it in however you want. I Then I could go, well, is it producing good fruit? Or, even better, it would be like, what parts of my life are producing bad fruit? Alright, yeah. let's start there. You know? And is it really the podcast, or is it the way that I'm, like, ignoring Jaffrey when I get home from school? You know, or whatever it is. Like, what's actually producing bad fruit right now? Okay, let's nip that in the bud.
1: Well, this is a perfect segue to the idea of authority, and specifically this idea that I've heard you talk about a lot in kind of the, the last chapter of your life, the podcasting chapter, a lot of conversations you have had over the last year or two, which is the idea of or the language of moral intuitions. So we grew up with an understanding of Christianity that really said the Bible was where we went for authority. And there are other streams of Christianity that also sort of simultaneously really prize what we would call tradition. Or church so, or, magisterium know, the, or the seven or ecumenical exactly, councils The, the teaching whatever, that has come right, down right. and the interpretation of the scripture that has come down over the centuries. And I don't sense that you give nearly as much authority. You don't locate nearly as much, so this is a relative statement, but That's nearly true. as much authority as you, you may be used to, you know, younger Dan, or certainly kind of yeah. like, you know, your average Christian would to – the scriptures, maybe we don't even need to say the average Christian, but just you're not an inerrantist anymore. You've got a very, we've had many, 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 many different kinds of conversations about the Bible, which will not be, we don't need to get into that because anybody who's listening to this interview and has listened to this far into this interview has listened to your podcast and knows (laughs) plenty about you. But you, you know, it strikes me that Maybe it's not like a zero-sum kind of thing where there's like a chamber that needs to be filled by some kind of gas. But like to the extent that there's a vacuum that that leaves, what has supplanted it or rushed into that space seems to be this idea of moral intuitions. This is – you know uh, oh, there's been, There have been a number of things we've talked about. You know, hell or universal salvation could be a great example, but where it's like this just – this just goes so against my moral intuitions my understanding to some sense to some extent it has to do with you know just like really a really basic understanding of language or theological yeah. language like if god is loving and and loving is kind of what we all think loving is like taking care of a baby instead of like poisoning the baby then surely like x can't be true. And you've just given a lot of weight on any number of levels and on any number of issues to that idea of, you know, sort of kind of listening to your own moral intuitions. So
0: yeah, is that okay. is that
1: fair? And if so, like, w- is that primarily where you now locate that? Is that where the locus of authority is for you? Like when you're trying to make a decision or sort of decipher something? I mean, you've also talked about prayer, so maybe that comes into it. But but how how do you do that? If you're not Turning as much as we might think of sort of a conservative Christian or the kind of Christian we grew up as would turn to the Bible, or yeah. to the magisterium or the church, you know, church teachings. Or is it just kind of it's all of those now? And you try to have more of a, a bouquet. You're always talking about that quadrilateral, and I can the never Wesleyan what it is. quadrilateral. But to yeah. just I've I've given you a good prompt here. Tell tell me a little bit about <laughs> how where you locate authority.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to answer authority and then go through the moral intuition stuff. So. It is true. I put a lot less authority in the Bible or even sort of church teaching over the years. And I'm I'm more for me, it's just like, I think I've become a bit more of a, a Kierkegaard style Christian existentialist, if you will, that like, I am accountable to God sort of directly. And that's the authority is God. And there's a whole bunch of things I need to live out a life that is decently accountable to God. And, and that includes the church and it includes a, a, a group of believers around me, but each of those sources of authority is imperfect. And so, yeah. So experience is one of the spokes on that Wesleyan quadrilateral wheel with reason, experience, authority, and scripture. And usually people put scripture at the top as sort of like, these are our guide rails, you know, guardrails, rather. So reason and experience are basically the the other two issues here. So moral intuitions would sort of fall under either of those, depending on what we're talking about. And the way that you've just mentioned it, I think it's worth delineating between two ways that I might use the phrase moral intuition. When we're doing the kind of David Bentley Hart argument about how if God sends any of God's creatures to hell for eternity— as punishment or something for what they did on earth or for any reason at all. That is not just in any sense of the word. Just therefore God's not just God's not good. And everything that we think we know about God must in fact be wrong. So we should not trust anything in the Bible that it says about God because language collapses. You might call that a moral intuition. I think that's just like a basic logical argument that like either language makes some sense when we talk about God or God sends some people to eternal hell for consciously forever. And if God does, then none of the language about God makes any sense. The way I usually use it is for something a bit more sticky, something like someone might say, well, I know that in your theological system, it's important that people have free will and that like evil not be, uh, you know, like God's not responsible for evil. So maybe people are causing evil or maybe God is limited in some of the things that God can do. But in my theological system, I really value sovereignty. So I think that God needs to really be in control of things or else God's not worthy of worship. So that would be a disagreement in moral intuition. So I would take the moral value of God's not causing egregious suffering. That's more important to me than God is sovereign over all things, because I can imagine worshiping a God that's not sovereign over all things, but is still a billion times more powerful than me, and that's plenty reason for worship. But that would be a moral intuition disagreement in the way I normally use it.
1: Hmm. Okay, I thought you just, I think I was thinking of it more, on a more basic understanding of the word intuition. Like it was like, this is what I suspect. Almost like this is what my gut tells me. Like that doesn't seem like that, you know, X, Y, or Z can be true. And and I'm really going to pay attention to that I'm really going to pay attention to that. And I'm going to give a lot of weight to that.
0: Yeah, I think it's a little different. Like when I first came up with that language, it was in philosophy of religion classes where we were going through sort of the classic problems with talking about God in over hundreds of years of like philosophy of religion debates. And so, yeah, people going like, well, it's more important to me that he's sovereign. Well, it's more important to me that he's loving. And like you, you, you winnow it down all the way. You totally understand each other and you just reach a crossroads where you have a different intuition. And so a Calvinist and I would have a different intuition in that sort of a sense.
1: So is experience then the thing that you give kind of the most weight to at this point you in your what, life? And
0: that's a great segue into something that I've been thinking about a lot. I I am increasingly, and again, this is the, the moment I'm in right now, this could change, but I am increasingly thinking about experience. I think that, I maybe think that experience is the whole ball game just insofar so far as d- depending on how you think of it, like every single thing we ever learn, see, do, think is filtered through our conscious experience. Even if we dream something, it's filtered through our conscious experience when we remember the dream. And of course it came from some part of our brain, you know, every part of our our national myth, our family stories, our friend group identity, it all funnels through our experience. All of our language funnels through our experience. There is no way for God to reach you that is not funneled through your experience in some way. And I don't, haven't worked out what all the implications of that are, but I think that there's something really interesting there. And I'm really been taken by this thing that Friedrich Schleiermacher mentions, 200 years ago. That is also in an episode that's not out at the time of this taping, but will probably come out before this. Where he, where, and I mentioned it earlier that like people were saved by coming into contact with Jesus before Jesus dies, and people, and he thinks that we basically experience Christ through other people who are Christ-like. And it's mm. all experience, like the whole game. Is God trying to get to me through the lens of my experience? I mean, if in one sense, that's literally everything. I awake one day and I slowly become old enough to be sort of conscious of things. I start to have experience. There's a what it is to be Dan quality that forms. And then when I die, I stop having that. Or perhaps it continues. I hope it continues in some other way after I'm dead. More experience. It's all experience. So someone says, well, I only hold to the seven ecumenical councils. Then I would say, why do you hold to them? Well, eventually you get down to them saying something like, there are people in my life that are Eastern Orthodox like me, and they hold to those, and I want to be like those people. Experience. If, for instance, you had a dad who beat you with a belt every day and murdered your mother in front of you who held to the seven ecumenical councils— you would probably not hold to them, right? Like no argument would convince you this is the standard for Christian doctrine. You'd be like, I've seen what that does. It killed my mom. Experience. It all comes through experience, at least at some point along the way. Yeah, other than basically like some pure mathematics. There's a handful of things that are not, that aren't filtered through experience, but almost everything is. So I don't know what you think about that or if you have any questions I'm still working on that one. I feel like we can leave that one there.
1: I feel like that was good. That was a good. <laughs> I feel like you probably said probably wise what you needed to say right there. That's good. We may be we may be drawing to a close, but what yeah. what's what's on your radar? Do we have any aircraft that haven't landed yet? What's going on?
0: I think there's really just this final thing that I, I wrote to you of just I'm trying to transition from Christianity is a total description of the world which is what I was basically taught, at least by some people growing up, transitioning to Christianity is a lens through which I can see the world and hopefully see the world more clearly because of that lens. Hopefully Christianity brings things into focus that wouldn't be brought into focus otherwise. And we've mentioned some of those things, like about, around money, right? So hopefully seeing wealth in the 21st century through a Christ-like lens Actually, it gives me a better understanding of what's going on with all this money, you know, and and all this all this bullshit identity that it gives people who have enough of it, you know. And that relates to the exclusivity thing, too, right? If Christianity is a description of the world and it's the best one and it's the superior one, then, yeah, everybody better become a Christian. But if it's like a very good lens, the lens that I ought to be using, a perfectly good, suitable lens for seeing the world more clearly than without it. Well, that's different. And then I don't need to have that anxiousness about being right, being exclusively right, being better by being more right, something like that. It's just like, hey, I'm going to use this lens and uh navigate the world with it. Hmm.
1: There's something I can't get at because I don't have I'm not coming up with the language. There's still something out there's still some thread I want to pull on there about you on the one hand have, uh, I think, a correct impulse toward really respecting your inability to get at somebody else's experience, but then you are perhaps also rightly just confident in stating what you perceive to be best for you, like it's best for me to be a Christian, it's best for me to stay in my tradition, it's best for me to, to do this. And perhaps, you know... Near the twain shall meet, or and maybe they don't need to, but it's like it's it, it still feels to me, and maybe it's you know just something that was so deeply ingrained or that I've has been part of my own lens for such a long time. But I suspect that there, that there may be more for us to talk about offline in the future. There, just the oh, idea that, like, is. I feel like I said, I you know, I said the word superior and you latched onto that, but if I'd used a different word, maybe that would have gone a little bit differently. Like Christianity, yeah, not- Christianity is. I don't know. Good, good for the good for the world, not just for people yeah, who sure. were born into it.
0: But better for the world than what? I mean, y- you can get to it either way. I'm not necessarily saying that you are obsessed with superiority or anything like that. Let me ask you this: Would you be willing to be Abram leaving your father's land if the Lord clearly called you to Hinduism? Would you Would you be willing to do it? Do you think you should be willing to do it?
1: I mean, if I was confident that the God of the universe was calling me to do anything, I would hope, I feel like I should be pretty humble right here, but like yeah. I would hope that I would be like, yes, Lord,
0: I'll do it. That's what I'm trying to get at, is like, yeah, I am called to Christianity for now. I don't think I'm going to be called away from it because it seems sufficient, but I don't know God's plans. And if God's like, Dan, you should be a Buddhist or you should be a Hindu because actually you will relate to me better through this other lens, I would hope that I'd be willing to do that. And what I don't want to say now is, of course, that will never happen because I've got it right. That seems wildly presumptuous to say something like that. And that's that's kind of what I'm getting at.
1: I think that's beautiful. I hope, as I said, I hope I would too. That may be a good place to to now land the plane. What do you think? Is there anything else that we haven't covered?
0: No, I think that's, I think that's good. We're, we're coming close to two hours and we can, we can just let people go back to their lives.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate you asking me to do this. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Great. I mean, we spent a lot of time on pluralism,
1: (laughs) which is fine.
0: What I wanted to know what came up for you. And I knew that you would be interesting to talk through this with. And it was I guess I'll just remind people if they want more of the two of us talking, go find that. I think it's called What Counts as Orthodoxy or something like that from over a year ago on the patron-only episodes in that feed. Excellent. And there'll be uh, news about your upcoming venture. Uh, I will at least mention it at some point once it's out, but we don't know when that's going to be.
1: No, we don't. And thank you. I'll keep you posted.
0: Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for your time, man. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that this was, in some sense, helpful for you, uh, at least as you process your own faith, your own uh, allegiance, if you will, to Christianity or whatever else. We will be back next week with another episode. And, you know, you can always sign up for the Patreon if you want to hear that I Don't Believe in That God episode that just came out. It's $5 a month. Patreon.com slash DanCoke or you have YouHavePermissionPod.com Click Become a Patron. Uh, there is also a sliding scale. So if money is really tight right now, email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. See you guys next week.